Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by my friend Arthur Millick. Arthur is the executive director of the Claremont Institute's Center for the American Way of Life. That is Claremont's D.C. outpost. He has been leading that operation since it launched probably a couple years ago or so now. But before then, I, I have an irresistible urge to chime in on a spat from this past Friday that had me just utterly pulling my hair out in frustration. I am talking about former President Donald Trump's utterly unhinged, disgraceful, and completely meritless and baseless attacks on the state of Florida. He released this outrageous statement from his spokesperson saying that Florida has been left in this tidal wave of of destruction and harm. And oh my God, it's this horrible place to live. And they have this governor. What is he doing? Why isn't he helping the people of the state of Florida? Do you know what the people of Florida feel about their governor? Mr. President, you mean that governor who was reelected this past November in a once purple state by 19 and a half percent, 19 and a half percentage points, a million and a half raw votes, won 70 percent Hispanic Miami-Dade County by 11 points, picked up Palm Beach County, won every single county in the Tampa Bay metropolitan area, won primarily Puerto Rican, Osceola County and Central Florida. I mean, I could go on here. There is no state that has had more in-migration since the onset of the COVID era. None. Then Florida. People are flocking here. Utterly flocking here. Florida picked up states in the U.S. Census. They are picking up scores of residents from California, New York, you name it. Why are they moving here? Because of the governance. Because there's a well-governed state because we led the country when it came to the COVID pandemic. We are leading the country in the pushback against the woke agenda, critical race theory, DEI, the fight to retake higher education when it comes to New College of Florida, you name it, across the board. People are moving here because they like it. And by the way, do you know who else lives in the free state of Florida? Donald J. Trump. (laughs) Donald Trump lives in Florida in Mar-a-Lago. I know because I have seen him there at Mar-a-Lago three times now. I mean, sir, you moved your residence to Florida over the past few years. You did so while Ron DeSantis was governor. And you did so because you, by your own admission, no longer felt like you could live in New York City due to the oppressive nature of it. And I agree with you, Mr. President. It is highly oppressive in New York City. You chose to come down to Florida for all the reasons that people come here, the weather, the tax regime. And yeah, you know, once upon a time, you actually also liked our governor, Ron DeSantis, as well. So that attack was just completely, wildly unhinged. A former guest of this show, Carol Markowitz, my good friend, had a wonderful op-ed in the New York Post 
on Monday of this week talking about the unhinged nature of this attack. Curiously, it seems like the pushback was so quick and so decisive against Trump's attack on Florida that he actually had changed his tune literally by Friday evening, a few hours after he launched it. As Carol pointed out in the New York Post column, apparently on Friday evening, Donald Trump was giving the keynote address for the Lee County Republicans in Fort Myers, Florida, over on the Gulf side. And apparently he mentioned how much he loves living here. So, I mean, like, what the hell? And what the hell can be explained real quickly is that Donald Trump has this notion in his head right now that he has to oppose whatever the hell it is Ron DeSantis does. Ron DeSantis, who, by the way, has still not announced his presidential campaign. Nonetheless, Trump has decided that whatever Ron says, I have to oppose. So DeSantis has doubled down against the Walt Disney Company. We discussed that on the show last week. Guess who's come out in favor of Disney and said, oh, Ron, maybe you should lay off. Yeah, that would be Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis came out and he defended the boycott of Bud Light. He said that this Dylan Mulvaney thing is a ridiculous stunt. And yeah, maybe I'm not going to drink Bud Light. Donald Trump Jr. literally called for conservatives to call off the attack dogs. He said this boycott has gone too far. No, actually, Anheuser-Busch donates more or a lot of money to Republican right of center causes. Maybe you shouldn't go so hard. So the Trump family came out in favor of, of Bud Light. And now, yet again... Donald Trump has seen fit to dump all over the state of Florida, which has been a beacon of sanity, a beacon of what a red state agenda of what red state America can and should look like. He has come out against all of that, notwithstanding the fact that he literally lives here simply because of this delusional notion that he has to say the opposite of whatever the hell Ron DeSantis says. I mean, it literally makes you wonder if Ron DeSantis gets out there tomorrow and says the sky is blue, if Donald Trump would say, no, it's actually yellow. I mean, like, what the hell? Like, what the actual hell? Anyway, I'm happy to see that the attacks have not stuck. Like I said, Trump was literally changing his tune a mere hours later at the Lee County, Florida, Lincoln-Reagan dinner, whatever they call it, over in Fort Myers on Friday evening. So I'm happy to see that. But that attack was just completely out of left field, utterly unhinged, and I think really evinces somewhat of the desperate tone, frankly, that we are seeing from certain quarters of the Trump 2024 campaign. So I had to get that one off my chest. Let's take it to a quick commercial break. On the other side, as promised, we will be joined by the great Arthur Millick of Claremont Institute. Stay with us. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
Welcome back. As previously mentioned, really thrilled to be joined this week by my buddy Arthur Millick. Arthur Millick is the executive director of the Claremont Institute's Center for the American Way of Life. He is one of my favorite conservatives fighting the good fight day to day. I think Arthur and I are on the same page when it comes to a lot of these issues. I guess we'll find out if that's true, Arthur, over the next 30 minutes or so. But it's good to have you here, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, no, the feeling is exactly mutual. So, you know, Arthur, you are a conservative intellectual. I think that is a fair way of putting it. You know, you formerly worked with a former guest of this show, our mutual friend David Azrad at the Heritage Foundation, and now you're leading the Claremont Institute's outpost in Washington, D.C., Center for the American Way of Life. So I thought I would start a conversation by asking you for your thoughts on a question that I've asked some previous guests, and I find myself just asking myself over and over again, really actually as recently as this past weekend. I was talking with a college kid about this at a conference in Delaware that I was speaking at. What does it mean to be on the right these days? Is the term conservative even relevant to what we are currently facing out there? Because I, I guess I'd put it this way. We know exactly what it is that we're against. We're against the insanity. We're against the woke. We're against CRT, DEI, ESG, the whole alphabet soup of utter insanity. What are we for? What, what, what are we for and what does it actually mean to be on the right in America in the year 2023? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and it's one that a lot of people obviously either puzzle over or just avoid thinking about. I mean, a part of me would like to get rid of the word conservatism, partly because what we're conserving uh, is certainly not the status quo. I mean, it's pretty clear, you know, you've talked about this, all of our friends have talked about this, that the status quo is ruled by the left. The country's spirit, the country's institutions, more importantly, is left-leaning or fanatically left. And so we're certainly not trying to preserve what we have here. What we're trying to do is resurrect, revive uh, a thing that was, it partly existed in the past, but to build ultimately a a new future that may in some ways parallel the past, but is is something uh, somewhat new given our circumstances. So for that reason, I I kind of, I I don't like the word. At the same time, however, I mean, we are at the end of the day, Americans. And what that means is that we are used to um, we can only be ruled by some form of constitutional government based on natural rights. You know, I know that there are a lot of people on the much further right that want to abandon that altogether. The trouble is that that still to this day does not really suit us as a people. That's our legacy within which we have to work. So it's this double problem that we are counter-revolutionaries trying to either disrupt, harm, humiliate institutions that now belong to the left. But at the same time, I still do sincerely think that we, 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 we cannot abandon uh, constitutional government as a goal. Now, constitutional government, keep in mind, is a very, very broad word that means the security of natural rights but can mean a variety of things in a variety of circumstances. And certainly the circumstances that we have today are just so totally different from what we had even 50, 60 years ago, that that is something that needs to be rethought. Rethought how? I mean, you're talking about kind of the broadness of of constitutional government and your boss at Claremont, Ryan Williams, and I discussed this a little bit when he was on the show last year. We talked about kind of the work that prudence does and kind of when it comes to means and ends and maybe have slightly more elastic means to suit the ends. I mean, is this all part of, quote unquote, knowing what time it is? I mean, is that kind of what we're getting at here? It is. But let's let's put some meat on the bone, uh, as you're suggesting. I mean, look, one thing that we have abandoned 
I think, as conservatives, is thinking about the states. Right. We always think about the next presidential election, the bills that Congress are, is going to pass or not pass, the role of the administrative state and how to corral it. The truth is that there's a huge swath of thought that is utterly undeveloped, I think, on the right, that is suited for our circumstances about what states can do in in absolutely obvious ways and in less obvious ways. So the obvious ways. The obvious ways are the things that have already taken place. I mean, you look at some red states and you look at the electoral map county by county. County, one county is redder than the next until you get to university towns and they're absolutely blue. And then you look just a little bit under the hood at what's taking place in those universities. And you see that they are absolute strongholds of the left inside of a map of red. And you start thinking, huh, why does it have to be that way? Why does it have to? Why do we just need to accept this? Namely, accept that the left somehow should control these institutions, should therefore control the education of young people and our children. And what you see is massive and I think healthy pushback uh, in red states and doing this. So I said that this is, you know, low hanging fruit, uh, but it's but it's still something that the right has not developed a stomach for. And this gets back to your first question. It has not developed a stomach for reclaiming territory, for reclaiming territory, for having a kind of self-confidence that says, no, this is our state. These should be our universities. We pay for them. They educate our children. They ultimately belong to us. Um, So. Again, when we talk about constitutional government, you're right to point out that it's this you know, very broad word, but this is one place where it's evident. In other words, self-rule on the level of the states in terms of education. However, there are other things uh, that one should consider too. Uh, for example, there are all sorts of things taking place uh, that states, I do think, have legitimate constitutional uh, authority over Uh, Why is it that states should just sit idly by? I know that there was a Supreme Court case on this, but hear me out. Why is it that the states should just sit idly by and be flooded with all comers that cross the border and just say, oh, well, the federal government is in default over this, uh, but our hands are tied. We're not going to do anything about it. Or Texas, uh, the prime example. Does Texas really not feel that it has you know, an authority to seal off the border and to try and uh, do something like that? Again, this is these are realms that we have not we're just starting to experiment with, just starting to think through. And uh, I, I think that this is very much the future of conservatism. So is federalism in particular here? You know, it's funny because I think about what we do from here. I mean, more broadly speaking, and I know that you think about that as well. I mean, as far as I see it, there are basically four paths forward for the United States of America, given the current tensions, given the current cultural dynamics, given the increasing rabid hatred. It, it's all too often seems between red America and blue America. And there are basically four paths forward, at least that I see. Maybe the fifth, and you can tell me if I'm wrong and I am forgetting a possibility. One path is the status quo, which is basically just this kind of slow, interminable decadent decline of a late stage empire. The second alternative would be basically what you're partially suggesting of radical federalism, otherwise known as just federalism. A third suggestion would be the Dave Reaboy option of a full on national divorce. 
And then the fourth option would be kind of a great kind of Lincolnian nationalist restoration around kind of a shared substantive sense of national pride, the common good, blah, 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 X, Y, Z. In theory, I would prefer that. I love Lincoln. I love the idea of national unity. In many ways, I am a nationalist. So in theory, I prefer that. But it's just not going to happen right now. So I, I guess I default to the radical federalism option as being the best path forward. Is that basically what you're suggesting? Yes, but and I agree with the way that you've listed off the alternatives, although I think that there's uh, there should be one particular chronological sensitivity, which is that um, I don't think that any kind of Lincolnian kind of solution, to use your words, is possible without radical federalism. I think that the left at this point uh, has so much contempt for uh, kind of normal Americans, so much contempt for uh, the few institutions that they still own, is so frequent, is so almost always full pedal to the metal in terms of humiliating, harming, undoing whatever little refuges of power that the right has, that I only think that under the circumstances that states actually become muscular and create enough of a balance of power over that regime, against, excuse me, that regime, that there can be any sort of return to normalcy, calmness, tranquility. Um, It won't come about, uh, in my view, without that. On the national divorce, look, uh, I think that they'll just never let you go. Uh, And need I remind you, I know I don't need to remind you, but maybe some of your listeners, that at this point in time, after the right has been saluting, praising, celebrating the military for the past many generations, the military brass has pretty openly signaled and sided with the left. So I, I don't think that there's, I mean, such an alternative just uh, is a, a very dark and rotten one. Uh, and I don't think that it's uh, preferable for the reasons that I said. And I don't think that it's preferable because I don't think that the right, which has been, as I said, ceding territory after territory, institution after institution for the past several generations, should indulge in these kinds of uh, hopes or copes uh, that, you know, We'll just leave and that'll be how we secure things for ourselves. That's another, that's just another retreat. It's like the homeschooling debate. God bless homeschoolers. They've done great things. I've met a lot of homeschool kids who are extremely impressive. But the internal logic mirrors what we did there, namely that the left captured the curricula, captured the schools that you yourself pay for, has driven us first to charter schools, then into homeschooling, and now basically into the woods. And we're like, oh, well, it's not that bad there. I think that the spirit has to be a counterattack spirit rather than a retreat. And the national divorce is a retreat spirit. I like that a lot. Because my whole shtick on this podcast, my columns, my one of my late motifs over and over again is just encouraging we on the right to be less defensive, to kind of eschew this overly defensive posture, this kind of paradigm of begging for table scraps, begging for dispensations from the diversity regime, things like that, and, and just go on offense. I mean, I mean, literally just man the battle stations and go on offense for once in your damn lives. I mean, you over-intellectualized, you know, set of feet 
kind of bow-tied idiots. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love what you're saying. I very much love that. And, you know, to your institution, to Claremont's great credit, uh, Scott Yenner, of course, being now in Tallahassee is kind of Claremont's way of getting directly involved at the state level here in Florida where I live. And it's really just been really great to see. So, I, you know, I think you and I are, are on the same page on, on a lot of this, unsurprisingly. Yeah. And Josh, and I just want to point out, I agree with everything you said, and I just want to point out that at least over the last generation, but stretching back probably more, conservatives have not really tried to conserve anything. Yep. Their self-understanding was not of protecting, of owning space, owning territory, owning institutions. They watched institution after institution fall into the hands of the left. And all the while they advocated for things that actually hurt the underlying causes that they were for. So, for example, thinking of a country as merely an economy will go down in history as one of the most ignorant, short-sighted views imaginable. You can have free-ish markets and tyranny at the same time. And that's the direction that we're heading in. And parts of the right would still celebrate that, thinking that, like, well, that's what freedom actually looks like. We ended up being so deluded in thinking that freedom was really about just getting wealthy. And and it forced us into thinking that the, the, the mental makeup, the spiritual makeup of a free people is really one that, you know, can cram into a cubicle in an office. And it's just such a mismatch of what is required to maintain civilization, the, the kind of manly, thematic sentiments. And what it also did is undermined our attachment to the nation. Nobody will sacrifice themselves for a nation that is merely an economy. At that point, you may as well be loyal to any nation that has the best economy. Look, it's very well said. I mean, I, I would only kind of add to your phrasing there of kind of this conflation of simply getting wealthy with living the good life and conservatism. I mean, getting wealthy and just this total and complete emphasis on just do what you want so long as it does not violate my extremely limited conception of John Stuart Mill's harm principle, right? I mean, this is kind of the whole kind of criticism of David French's infamous line about drag queen story hours being a quote-unquote blessing of liberty. And, you know, the overall theoretical problem, of course, has been kind of the libertarianization of the capital C conservative capital M movement that this program and many others are kind of dedicated to trying to unwind. So I I want to get to a quick commercial break here. But on the other side, Arthur, I want to pick up this conversation with a specific focus on some of the really just earth shattering, shocking, most recent events that have broken this week about the media and Tucker Carlson in particular. So let's take it to a quick commercial break. We have Arthur Mellick of Claremont Institute with us. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. (laughs) 
So, Arthur, I saw you in person just this past weekend. I saw you on Friday at the Heritage Foundation's very luxurious uh, 50th anniversary gala. You are a former employee of the Heritage Foundation. It was great to see you at that event. Tucker Carlson was the keynote speaker at that gala on Friday evening, gave a simply electric address, really just a sensational kind of somewhat off the cuff kind of emphasis to his audience on understanding the stakes of what the opposition is trying to do day in and day out to look at them for what they are and not this kind of over intellectualized conception. It was really just fantastic stuff. And then earlier this week, out of seemingly nowhere, the news comes that Fox News and Tucker Carlson are parting ways. And Tucker, of course, has the highest rated show on all of cable news. Really just out of nowhere. I, I mean, but you and I are, are, are recording this fairly shortly after the news broke, but by everything that I have read, it seems like his team was entirely blindsided by this. Tucker in recent years has really just become kind of the embodiment of what you, I, and others on the so-called new right, this more realist kind of prudential, slightly more populist kind of strand of conservatism are trying to do. I mean, do you have any thoughts on Tucker and Fox parting ways and perhaps more broadly, what, if anything, that says about the momentum of the new right? Well, it's a, the, the last part of your question is interesting. Let's, let's come back to that in a moment. Uh, one, one thing that I think comes out of this is, I, I hope, a defeat of this conservative coping mechanism uh, that they deploy almost always, which is you go woke, you go broke. And this is another one of these examples where that probably won't be true. On the one hand, Tucker has huge views. Everybody knows that. He attracts a different demographic, a younger demographic than every single other show, I suspect, on Fox. And yet they got rid of him. It's going to cost them a lot, I suspect, to get out of that contract. It's going to cost them a lot in terms of their decline uh, on account of this. And yet, I suspect I have no proof of this, but I just have a hunch that they're actually pretty happy to get rid of him. They're pretty happy to get rid of him because he has been the only voice that is against the regime, broadly speaking, the regime that unifies uh, the establishment right and the mainstream and even radical left. And in a way, you see, you see that in the contrast between the things that Tucker allows himself to say, the kinds of observations that he allows himself to make, the kinds of truth that he tells, and what other parts of that channel uh, allow themselves. Uh, there's a huge difference. So my hunch is that they're actually quite happy to get rid of him. And whatever the private circumstances that precipitated this, are probably favorable to them. They, 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 they know that there are limits to what they can say on immigration, on race, on the intel state, the very things that made Tucker famous, that he pushed forth into the mainstream, that I suspect make them very uncomfortable. And the fact of their discomfort shows that they are spiritually on the left, even if they would deny that in speech. It's well said. I mean, it's hard not to view it as a bit of a setback. No doubt about that. Um, on the other hand, I mean, surely every circumstance of this nature is unique. The, I don't pretend to know all the internal dynamics at, at Fox. 
uh, News Corporation, things of that nature there. I mean, I, I am sure that kind of the Murdoch family, which is typically a little more establishment aligned, I think would be a polite way of saying it in its outlook. I am sure that they and Tucker Carlson disagree about any number of, of substantive issues. I, I mean, of course, there was this recent uh, settlement uh, nearing $800 million, a gargantuan sum for any company between Fox and Dominion pertaining to the host post-2020 election allegations of, of voter fraud in, in the machine. So it's probably too soon in the aftermath of this to try to just put all the pieces together there. But again, I think for kind of the the new right, broadly speaking, to the extent that that term even means anything anymore, it's tough not to view this as a bit of a setback. And it really did not seem to me like Tucker knew this was coming. I mean, you know, you were at the same speech that, that I was Friday evening. I mean, there was no kind of even subtle illusion or anything like that. So to not even give your highest rated host any opportunity for a farewell show, like one final monologue, one sign off, one thanks to the viewers, shockingly abrupt and it really just strikes me as somewhat gratuitous to to be honest with you as someone kind of working in the media space myself. So we'll see what happens there with Fox News. Arthur, I do want to kind of shift gears here and let's get into some substance. So the outfit that you lead, Claremont's DC-based Center for the American Way of Life, we recently ran an op-ed from them about a month ago or so at, at Newsweek's opinion section. This op-ed was focused on something that the Claremont Center for the American Way of Life has been really kind of beating the drum about for the past couple of months, and I hope you guys don't stop because it's very important, which is the extent to which corporate America has just been totally, totally, totally in it for Black Lives Matter to the tune of nearly $83 billion since the George Floyd riots of 2020. So my last show was entirely dedicated to woke corporations and viewing them as the enemy of the people. So this fits very neatly into this. Why don't you unpack for us your group's recent work when it comes to exposing the very incestuous relationship between corporate America and Black Lives Matter? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So that top line number that you gave, $83 billion. So $83 billion was given by American corporations to BLM and BLM-related causes, as we've called them. Now, that number is broken down in the following way. About $125 million went directly to BLM, and the rest, which is the overwhelming majority, went to BLM-related causes. That often means... Uh, official partner organizations like the NAACP. It means, uh, in one example, uh, subprime lending, subsidizing subprime lending in the case of J.P. Morgan. And what relates these causes together, you'd say, well, what does BLM have to do with subprime lending? Well, the answer is the following, that I think that BLM and, let's say, the DEI infrastructure share a great deal in common. The only thing that they differ on is tactics. So their moral vision is the same, namely um, how to engineer and force a transfer of wealth, positions, and power to so-called marginalized groups away from so-called oppressor groups. Those are the, those two things, BLM and the DEI infrastructure, have the same exact goal in mind. They openly state it. The DEI says it a little more subtly, but they, they, they come close to it. The only place where they differ, in my view, is on tactics. BLM's tactics, as everybody knows, is the street theater, the, the, the burnings, the protests, the intimidation, the hysteria. 
while the DEI infrastructure's tactic is a little more bureaucratic, a little calmer, basically working within the moral horizons of the bureaucratic class to make this uh, uh, digestible to them. So that's the broad headline. Um, and the bottom line lesson, I think, from all of this is that the left has, I mean, the left in a way discovered this in the 60s, but they, they've, they've discovered it in a different way today, which is you protest, you become hysterical, you make immense moral claims, and you will get a huge payout, a huge payout from corporate America. So the next question is, well, why does corporate America do this? And I think that that can be basically categorized into three groups. There are some who just feel that they're being extorted, that this is simply extortion, and that it's better to pay, better to do a payoff than, you know, have your, uh, have your headquarters protested, then have you libeled on social media, accused, maybe sued, uh, etc. So there's the first group that just doesn't want to, that is okay with being extorted to move on. There's another group, and I think that this probably mainly characterizes the, the tech world, but maybe others, and that group are the believers. They do to some degree believe in the overall mission, believing that it's just. And then the third group, I think, are the, probably the most interesting. I suspect it's hard to put your finger on who thinks how, but I suspect that many of the major financial institutions in America think this way, which is that they're totally cynical about this. They're cynical about the causes. They don't really care about them. But what they do think, what they're betting on, is that the left really will once and for all dominate the country and they are buying their way to the negotiation table later down the line. Can you unpack that lattermost point? Because that's actually a really fascinating the way you just phrased that. Can you um, just unpack that a little more? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, you can be somebody that runs a major financial institution, have immense power, and effectively have the same analysis as you and I do. So, for example... <clears throat> you see that over the past, you know, two generations, the right who used to support you, used to, you know, take your campaign contributions, used to protect you through tax policies, has now effectively been defanged. Right. There's a new, very powerful ruler that dominates most of the country uh, in the face of the left. And you see the writing on the wall and you see you are betting that the left really will once and for all dominate the country, that the numbers uh, due to demographic shifts will keep growing on the left, that the right will become less and less powerful in a variety of ways. And you just say to yourself, like, it's like I'm betting on a stock. I think that this stock is going to go up. And in this case, I right. think that this party and this regime is going to go up. And what's, you know, 20 billion? To me, maybe I'll make a little bit off of it, but what I am doing is safeguarding my future, my kids' future, this company's future uh, in a new America. And I'll be there well before anybody else realizes it. Look, I mean, all of the incentive structure, I mean, if you kind of accept 
any semblance of the basis that people and corporations are rational actors. Yeah, the incentive structure on the one hand is definitely to kind of play to the people who have the disproportionate cultural clout, Black Lives Matter. On the other hand, that logic is somewhat circular, and obviously corporations can overreach when it comes to the woke crap, for lack of a better term. I mean, they do so all the time. I mean, just this past weekend, we saw that, what's her name, Alyssa Heinerschei, the vice president of marketing for Bud Light, she is on a on a leave of absence just this morning. Actually, I saw another headline that another Anheuser Bush kind of higher up marketing executive is on leave after the fiasco involving the transgender activist Dylan Mulvaney and that completely ham fisted, utterly asinine marketing gimmick that Bud Light decided to do with him, her, whatever pronouns we decide to affix to Dylan Mulvaney. So there definitely is real overstepping here. I guess maybe, Arthur, there's a difference between kind of transgender overstepping and race overstepping. I mean, the best thing that the Black Lives Matter movement has going for it is that it's called Black Lives Matter, right? And you and I can kind of give like a five, 10 minute concise eloquent spiel as to why Black Lives Matter is actually this radical Marxist outfit dedicated to nothing less than the destruction of the nuclear family and the ultimate overthrow of Western civilization. I mean, you don't have to look very far. They at least used to say this very explicitly on their website. I'm not sure if they still do. But is part of the Black Lives Matter specific phenomenon just this unique, absolutely unique role that race specifically holds in contemporary American discourse, even relative to gender, sexual orientation, things like that? So, look, it's a good question, and it's an important distinction to make. I, I am a little hesitant, though, to go in that direction. So here's, here's where I agree with you. I do agree that basically much of the right and all of the left think of the country in the following way, that if our fellow Black Americans are succeeding, then this is a good country. If they're failing, then there is something wrong and we need to fix it. And that is basically the definition that Ibram Kendi gives in a slightly different way, which is to say that when you see disparities, that means that there is racism there. I think that many, many Americans, a, a huge majority of Americans have swallowed that definition. And so the, the, the cause of our fellow black Americans does pain them in a certain way, in a certain unique way, that maybe transgenderism doesn't. But in a way, you're right that the Bud Light fiasco uh, was a success for the right. And in another way, it wasn't. And I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer. I actually am, broadly speaking, optimistic in many ways about the future. So I'm not one of these people that is just like, oh, yeah, it looked like a victory, but it's really uh, you know, a loss. I, I don't like that attitude. But I do think it is a failure in this regard. We don't know how to complete jobs. So for example, that, that person was put an, on administrative leave. Well, why wasn't she fired? I mean, to be put on administrative leave itself is an indication that the company is saying, we're yielding to pressure and we need to think about it. Here's what would be a real success. A real success would be some kind of behind the scenes, um, let's say agreement, that, uh, which is what the left does all the time that Anheuser-Busch would become openly a Red America company and that Red America would protect it from the onslaught that comes, but would guarantee that sector of the economy for it and promote it. That is what I think a victory would look like. Um, 
And these kinds of half measures, I fear, always end up slipping away from us because initially somebody is fired. Initially, there's a scandal. But overall, over the course of the next six months or year, there's a reversion back to maybe not such hard charging leftism, but to liberalism light. And so in the end, it, it's a victory that we like to pat ourselves on the back for. But you don't actually gain an asset in your own constellation of assets. And that's what I'm talking about. That's why I'm optimistic in a way. But that, I think, is the, the fundamental transformation that we have to have on the right in our minds, that we think of things as assets to make our own. On the one hand, you know, it can cause someone to get depressed quite easily when you contemplate the fact that we're literally here and to kind of just break this down for the listeners, what you and I are basically getting at is, you know, should Anheuser Bush just embrace the right, embrace its consumer base and be a quote unquote conservative brand? So on the one hand, it's kind of depressing to think about, you know, like beer companies. So like if my buddy and I want to go to the bar and grab a brew and we're looking at what's on tap, it's kind of depressing to have to think about uh, literally thinking in real time as to whether this beer or that beer hates me or loves me, hates my values, loves my values, whatever. On the other hand, it is also kind of just the inescapable reality of the current moment. And I suppose that we have no other choice but to deal with the reality that the left has in many ways, unfortunately, put upon us. So, Arthur, we're nearing the end of our time here. I want to just kind of throw it back to you just for one final word. So I know that Claremont's D.C.-based center, I've mentioned two things. You know, you guys have this new initiative when it comes to exposing the cozy relationship between Black Lives Matter and corporate America. I mentioned Scott Yenner being now in Tallahassee, Florida, as Claremont's kind of outpost when it comes to what you and I discussed earlier in the program, trying to kind of reinvigorate federalism, really just trying to make red state America great, really kind of anchored in larger red states like Texas, Florida and Tennessee and so forth. Any other big projects that you kind of have your eye on right now that you, that you want to flag for the listeners? Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I mean, uh, you know, there, there are a whole host of things, but I, I really think that the, the red states is the the thing that the right should be spending most of its time on. Um, and, you know, I, I, I speak on a lot of university campuses and I always tell young people like, you know, especially at elite schools, you shouldn't dream about moving to San Francisco, New York, uh, or whatever other big DC, whatever other big city, you know, that it was the trend to move to over the past 10, 15, 20 years, you should be thinking about what can I make of myself in Little Rock? Because the opportunities there are so enormous. The exercise of new thinking, new projects, new hopes are so much greater. There's so much more freedom to rule uh, in places like that. And that, I think, is the main project that our side ought to be pursuing because, you know, what, what you said before is very true. It's like, it's a shame that we have to look at Anheuser-Busch as uh, which side are you on, boy? But that is just the circumstance. And the more we kind of become nostalgic and think, ah, what about the 90s when we could just drink a beer? That time for now is simply over. Yep. And, so, and, and it's really in the States that you have these kinds of powers and this kind of freedom for your mind to roam, to think through a redesign. And I regret that a, a lot of it won't be done through D.C. 
It really is not. The swamp is exactly that. It is the swamp. The best chance for many folks to look these days is to the states and specifically to red states. We are in the midst of what some commentators refer to as a great sort of sorts. No pun intended, a great sort of sorts between Blue America and Red America. And Arthur, I know that you and I are both placing our chips on Red America and doing all that we can to try to support those efforts. So Arthur Millick, you're a friend and you've been a great guest. Thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Josh. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Thanks again to Arthur Millick for stopping by, Arthur. Really, if you're not familiar with his work because Arthur is not on that cesspool of social media known as Twitter.com. So if you are hopelessly online and addicted to social media, you might be less familiar with him. But if that is the case, you really should go ahead and check out his writings. He's written any number of, of great essays, especially when it kind of comes to hate speech, higher education reform. And a wonderful essay for National Affairs a few a few years ago that I that I can recall, "Suicide by Higher Education," if I recall the title of the essay. Really, just some incisive commentary all across. And Arthur is definitely one of those guys to use the overused phrase from this show and others. Definitely one of those guys who knows what time it is, so to speak. So I want to just very quickly underscore something that we alluded to but didn't really flesh out in our conversation. So Arthur used to work at the Heritage Foundation. I think Arthur was actually the understudy of former Josh Hammer Show guest David Azrad, our mutual friend. And they've both since left Heritage, but they they were both at the same gala on Friday night that, that I was at. It was a 50th anniversary gala for, for the Heritage Foundation. Another former guest of this show, Dr. Kevin Roberts, is the president of the Heritage Foundation. And he spoke at that gala. He gave this really just flowing, lavish introduction to Tucker Carlson, who we discussed earlier on this show as well. And I just want to take a quick moment here to praise my friend, Dr. Kevin Roberts, who has really done yeoman's work in his less than a year and a half at the Heritage Foundation. Heritage, under its former president, K. Cole James, ooh, how shall we say this, um, was slipping, was definitely slipping in influence. In fact, to go back to the George Floyd riots, which we mentioned as well in, in this episode, to go back to that in the aftermath of the George Floyd riots, K. Cole James, who was the president of the Heritage Foundation at the time, the Heritage Foundation, of course, has a long history to the early 1970s, founded by Ed Fulner, one of the great, iconic American right of center organizations. Nonetheless, in the aftermath of the George Floyd riots, you had K. Cole James, the sitting president who came out and basically said that America actually is systemically racist. And it was a new low 
it was a new low for the Heritage Foundation. It was really disgraceful. Tucker Carlson devoted numerous monologues of his, I guess, now former Fox News show that week to utterly excoriating K. Cole James, calling America systemically racist, really tearing into what the Heritage Foundation had become. So the fact that Heritage brought Tucker to give its keynote address at their marquee 2,000 to 2,500 person, totally kind of over the top, huge, spectacular gala. The fact that Tucker was the keynote address and the current president, Dr. Roberts, introduced him with such kind of loving, really, I mean, really just kind of loving words says so much about the job that Kevin Roberts, that you have done in your barely over a year at the helm and making Heritage Foundation relevant again, putting it at the center of the conversation. And I truly just hope that that continues when it comes to kind of these substantive policy issues that matter. I hope to see Heritage getting really, really into the center of the arena. But it was personally really just nice for me to be there and to see this in action. I am sure that Arthur felt the exact same way. So once again, thank you so much for tuning in this week. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Arthur Millick of Claremont Institute. You know where to find us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. If you're not already doing so, go ahead and click the subscribe button. Leave us a written review. That's how the algorithms work, people. You should know that by now. And we hope you enjoy this conversation. I am Josh Hammer. We will see you next week. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. (laughs) It's just like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts. One, two. Three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.